Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the penultimate episode of Still Watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you're just joining us for the first time, what we do on this podcast is each week Richard and I follow a show. We pick a show, we follow it week by week, we break it down. Um, we are currently also, you might have, uh, you might notice this Sunday, we are also covering the HBO series Mayor of East Town. That's M-A-R-E, Mayor of East Town. We are starting that um, this Sunday, but we just have a couple episodes of Falcon Winter Soldier left to get through. Um, we sometimes like to have folks who've worked on the show on the podcast to chat about us. We have a we have an interview with the lovely Emily Van Camp on this episode, and um, I will tell you a little bit more about it right before we get into it. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of a funny one, and then. Of course, our colleague Anthony Brezikin, the great Anthony Brezikin, will join me in the back third of the podcast to get a little granular about some sort of geeky comic book stuff. Um, but before we get into the meat of this episode, this episode is episode five, Truth. Richard, did we have any emails that you wanted to dig into? Uh, we, we do have emails, yes. And I would hope the emails keep on coming as we 
near the end of this second of our Marvel adventures, though, now Loki is premiering in June. So who knows? Maybe (laughs) maybe the Marvel train is just going to keep on rolling for us. But in the meantime, um, we got an email from Jeffrey, uh, who writes to us. Uh, Just a quick observation. I find it interesting how some very fraught male roles these days are being taken by legacies of famous Hollywood stars. It would seem to be a very practical move given human nature to remember or even associate character traits with the actors themselves. I'm assuming the fact that Wyatt Russell is the child of beloved Hollywood royalty, that's um, Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell for people who don't know, uh, will help insulate his career from the potential negative associations with his character. If this is indeed a thing, an even better example would be the character played by Patrick Schwarzenegger in Moxie, uh, which is a Netflix movie uh, directed by Amy Poehler. Unlike Russell's character, Schwarzenegger is, Schwarzenegger's is completely devoid of any likable or redeeming qualities and is simply monstrous. Given the amount of time you spend speaking with actors in studios, I wonder if they've ever spoken about this dynamic with you. I'm. Uh, do you mind if I jump in? Yeah, yeah. I've never heard anyone explicitly say this, but I do have to think that Wyatt Russell, who is a great performer, um, has done a lot of great work before this show. You know, he has to think about what will it do to my career, my image or whatever to play this, you know, universally reviled character of John Walker. And, and Wyatt has been really has had like great good humor in all of his interviews so far this season about sort of, yep, I knew what I was signing up for. <laughs> I'm everyone's mm-hmm. punching bag and I'm aware of it. Um, but I hadn't considered this idea that he has that extra layer of insulation because we associate him with Kurt, who also played a uh, Marvel villain. Um, so, and I just, I just associated more with, Kurt, because his last name is Russell, and he looks so much like him. But of course, yes, there's some Goldie in there too. Um, what do What do you think, Richard? Well, now I really want Goldie Hawn to play a Marvel villain, and then maybe Kate <laughs> Hudson just to, or maybe Oliver Hudson. I don't know. To the whole Hudson the Russell Hawn yes. clan. Um, yes. Sure, why not? Um, I, I yeah, I think that probably there there yes, there definitely could be some calculus on the part of an actor and their management team and their agents and whatever to be like, okay, like you, you're a, a known entity, not just because of your work, but also because of your family. So this will be safe. You won't get branded the awful villain uh, forever. But I also wonder if another part of that sort of arithmetic is that for people like Wyatt Russell and Patrick Schwarzenegger, who are these, you know, handsome sons of Hollywood royalty if it works better to have them playing villains because we kind of like already are sort of not a hundred percent rooting for them. I mean, we are mostly in, in Wyatt Russell's case, but like, I think that that sort of poncy kind of rich boy sort of pampered thing works well when it's taken to another extreme in the case of Schwarzenegger's character in a very um, cute, um, you know, teen movie Moxie. He's just a, a horrible bully in this case. Uh, John Walker is a sort of murderous, politically and you know morally conflicted uh, superhero. Um, I think it's sort of more interesting to watch these, you know, princes, these little Lord Fauntleroys, uh, fall from grace a bit. Uh, so I wonder if that's not necessarily a conscious thing on the behalf of the actor and their team, but maybe in casting. And casting calculus. Yeah, possibly. Uh, we should, if all goes according to plan, we should have a conversation with Wyatt Russell in an upcoming episode and possibly also a conversation with, um, Sarah Finn, who's Marvel's longtime casting director. So maybe we will get answers to both of those questions, uh, for you. Uh, what else do we have email wise, Richard? 
Um, we have an email from Terrence. Um, and the, the subject line is John Walker is trash an evergreen statement, which I think was, uh, succinct and accurate. Um, so Terrence writes, I was compelled to write in after the events of the last episode. From the start, it was clear Marvel was going to try and give a shorthand for how to compare John and Steve. When Lamar walked into the room uh, in episode two, I thought, not them giving John a black friend too. Unfortunately for Lamar, he never got a standout moment or any set of discernible skills like Sam has. So it was tough to form an attachment to him other than he seemed to be the only thing keeping John planted in the real world. As a black man, I am torn on the show using his death to motivate John, because while I do feel like it makes sense for a character like John to be so mad he lost someone that he would commit murder, I feel like uh, he was already coming apart at the seams. In this episode alone, we saw him unable to control himself when he interrupted Sam and Carly after like two minutes. He was routinely not given the respect that he thought he deserved and got handled by human and super soldier alike. The final beatdown coming at the hands of the Dora Milaje really putting him in psychological tailspin. Was that plus super serum not enough? The show uses the grief of a man to rationalize his choices, but still also wants to make broader comments on racism and American imperialism. However, by killing Lamar, it kind of takes some power away from that latter thing, because as you pointed out via the Reddit comments, people will rationalize away horrible acts. Might John's actions have been more interesting if Lamar maybe was just injured, and he still went after him if it was just John himself motivated for no other reason than his hubris at wanting to dominate these foreign flag smashers. The serum already amplifies what's inside and what could be more American than claiming jurisdiction in countries you shouldn't, and doing unspeakable acts in broad daylight without a thought of the repercussions. My hope is that the show will rightfully punish John. I'd take a final final fight with Isaiah and Sam beating him up with a shield, followed by a long prison sentence. But I have a feeling they won't, because they'll want to make the point, well, white people get away with stuff in real life. Yeah, that's so funny. It's so interesting. And thanks so much for that email. Um, Terrence is someone that I have uh, interacted with for a long time on Twitter. So thank you so much for that email. Um, I, uh, I was... I thought they might go that route. And I think a lot of people did. A lot of people thought maybe the government wouldn't rebuke John and that would be sort of shorthand for, you know, all the white cops we see have, you know, we, Brianna Taylor's killer got a book deal this week. So, you know, like that kind of commentary, that's not the route they decided to go. Obviously in this episode, um, John gets completely stripped of his, uh, you know, <laughs> honor uh, they didn't say dishonorably discharged but they said discharged with not honorably i don't know it was a really interesting phrasing um yeah i uh i think it's so complicated what they're doing here and sometimes they land it sometimes they don't and there's a lot of work done in this episode mostly in the isaiah section that helps make things feel more coherent than they have for me elsewhere in the series um, but I'm wondering what you think, Richard, of, of this email and, and this point. Yeah, I really appreciate Terrence's email and his thoughts on this. I, I think it is, you know, as the email lays out, it's a complex thing where you have to sort of balance um, expectation versus what the narrative intent uh, of the people making the show is and what they're trying to say. And I, I think that you know the, the 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 scenes in this episode where or the scene where he's sort of stripped of his duty and, and reprimanded by this panel of people and then is immediately sort of undercut by the arrival of this contessa character played by julia louis dreyfus who we'll talk more about because i have questions joanna um where she's like they're not really mad 
you know, I, I think that that is an interesting um, uh, way to talk about how optics mm. have become almost entirely separate from institutional ethos. You know, the police say do one thing and try to, you know, maneuver a P sort of PR strategy while really not changing any behavior uh, in any concrete way, as we've seen this week and every week for years. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to talk about uh, in, in the context of, of these shows where so much, especially this show, where so much of Captain America is optics and to have that sort of tarnished yeah. while not really making any, uh, at least right now, clearly stated efforts to change the actual practical policy of how these people work in the world, these superheroes, these Avengers. Um, I think that's a, that's a strong point to make in this show. Yeah. And we will definitely talk about Juliet in just a hot second. Um, I did like one, one moment that she did in her little appearance here is like, she, I think she says something like, you know, these men in ties have something to protect. And then she made a little like money gesture with her gloved hands. And it was like a really nice little, little moment. I have two quick email things I want to hit before we talk, we go full Julie Louis Dreyfus, which we are going to do. Um, you can always email us still watching pod at gmail.com. We just got a couple quick questions that I wanted to answer. Uh, Jana wrote in asking why Bucky hadn't aged um, when both Steve and Isaiah do. And um, that is because when he was the winter soldier, Hydra would like put him on ice between missions. So basically like they just like thought him out in the microwave, <laughs> sent him off to kill someone and then just put him back in the deep freeze until they needed him again. So, you know, he was sort of in cryostasis for a lot of those years, if that makes sense. So that is why Bucky uh, still looks like something of a spring chicken. Um, and then there's another Bucky question that I wanted to pose to you, Richard. Um, Andrea wrote in, we had all these discussions about the super soldier serum amplifying certain things in Steve. It just makes a good man better in John Walker. It brings out, it exposes weaknesses uh, and amplifies them. Uh, but something that, that we haven't discussed in all of this is what do we think the super soldier serum amplified in Bucky? Like, should we be talking about Bucky in the same category as Steve in terms of someone who, yes, he w he went through all this torment, but on the other side of this, like, you know, he's a, he's a good and heroic person. So, you know, did he also have what it takes to take the super soldier serum and not, you know, barring the Hydra torture, like not lose track of who he is? What do you think about that, Richard? Yeah, I guess there was an innate thing in him, even, you know, before the Hydra stuff, that was able to survive despite all of his brainwashing and all that stuff. Um, that almost gets into sort of almost like Calvinist thing about like innate good or, or, or you know, worthiness <laughs> yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's a little dangerous, but um, I guess the Calvinists were more in, uh, concerned with innate bad, but. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's not a perfect, you know, it doesn't lay perfectly over every character, this idea that it reveals who you are or whatever, or, or shows more of who you are. But I think the, the, the broader point is clear that um, there will be very few people who use power responsibly, much many more who will use it irresponsibly, and then there will be conflicted people in between who, uh, you know, sometimes do good and sometimes don't. Um, and maybe actually Bucky in that way represents the majority of people, uh, 
if given that kind of uh, might, whether that's physical or financial or whatever. Yeah, I um, I, I just think it's really interesting because like it's hard to track Bucky's arc because there's so much sort of interference in all of that. But um, I do think it's we don't we don't often give him the praise that maybe he deserves for for fighting this brainwashing and um, coming out the other side of this, going into therapy in, in different ways. Um, I want to, to tie this all together with one last email that we got from uh, listener Michael, because I'm like tickled by the source of this, uh, advice. Um, Michael cites his old boss, Quincy Jones, uh, who once told him the following. First of all, there's nothing normal about being a celebrity. After 50 years in the business, I've come up with the following hypothesis. Once you regain your equilibrium after being initially bombarded with celebrity, Whatever you are at your core is heightened. If you're a jerk at heart, it's magnified. If you're a kind, compassionate person, it's magnified too. Uh, so basically, Quincy Jones's uh, philosophy on celebrity is the same as the Marvel's philosophy on the Super Soldier Serum. So I just, I just liked that. Uh, love to work a little Quincy Jones into the podcast. Um, all right. So yeah, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We have got at least one more episode on Falcon Winter Soldier. If not, maybe one more after that to wrap it all up. We shall see how like sort of our interviews line up. Um, but here we go, Richard. Are you ready to talk about Julia Louis Dreyfus? Yeah, please. Um, All right. Well, what are your questions? Well, I mean, I, I knew that a big cameo was coming because you had mm-hmm. told me, and I think I'd seen some chatter on online in the last couple of days. Um, I, I did not expect it to be her. Certainly. <laughs> yeah. I thought it yeah. might be, you know, I, I don't know. I guess I don't know who I thought it would be. We had a lot of cameo theories for WandaVision from John Krasinski to Al Pacino. Um, uh, but this was unexpected. I, I think partly because I, I don't know who this character is. So it, it hadn't crossed my mind that a character I wasn't aware of would be a big cameo on, on the show. Um, so tell me who is the Contessa, you know, blank, 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 blank. Uh, all right. So the Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, um, who says, you can just call me Val. And then she's like, don't call me Val. Great stuff. Um, she is a comic book character. She, she has a like there's a when they pick up a comic book character, especially one like this, who has done so many different things, there's just a number of different directions they could go with this person. But basically, like she's been a character known as Madame Hydra, she's been a shield agent, she's been a Russian sleeper spy, she's been a bunch of different things. She was Nick Fury's love interest. Um, my favorite is this uh idea about her origin story, which is that she was like this jet setting um Italian rich kid whose parents died and she felt like she wanted to do something more. She's basically like Italian Batman. She wanted to like do more than just be an Italian socialite when her parents died. So she trained to be a spy. I was like, yes, Italian Batman played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Love that. So basically she's here. I don't, I mean, I don't know whether or not she'll be in the finale. I suspect she might be. Um, She may or may not be the power broker that we've been talking about. I suspect she might be. Um, but more interestingly, I have an, an article about this up on VF.com right now, but more interestingly, I've heard, I've, I had heard about her arrival and I had heard that she was actually originally supposed to appear in Black Widow, the movie that was supposed to come out in like May of last year. So basically if all things, if things had gone according to plan, Black Widow would have come out in May and then this show would have come out, I think in September, sometime in the fall. 
Um, but everything got shuffled around because of COVID, obviously. And Black Widow still isn't out. <laughs> so, but is she going to be in it? I don't know. She's in the final cut. I, I suspect, here's my theory. I suspect, I suspect they're setting her up as sort of like a dark Nick Fury who is going to be going around and recruiting, um, super powered people for nefarious purposes. And so I wouldn't be, I don't know what she's supposed to be doing in Black Widow, but I wouldn't be surprised if she shows up as a post credit stinger in the same way Nick Fury showed up at the end of Iron Man to recruit someone, maybe Florence Pugh's character, uh, in Black Widow to some Dark Avengers. There's a, there's a sort of <laughs> Dark Avenger-esque thing in Marvel called the Thunderbolts, which a bunch of people think, um, you know, Marvel is sort of setting up by plucking a, a, a lingering bad guy out of like maybe all of these TV shows and then creating a super team out of them. It's sort of like the Suicide Squad, but not, you know, not so fedora wearing whatever. Um, so, <laughs> so, so yeah. So I, I kind of think that they're setting her up as like a, a dark Nick Fury, which I love. And I would really love if they kept like the Nick Fury Contessa love story from the comics and the films. Cause I would love to see Samuel Jackson and Julie Lou Dreyfus play like sparring exes or something like that. So yeah. yeah. So she Does could that be a your big, question. Yeah. So she could be a big part going forward. Uh, that's uh, that is what I've been told that she's that we are going to see much more of her that whether or not she's in the finale of this show she's going to be popping up maybe just like a little bit little bit little bit and then you know come through in a big way does that make sense cool yeah I'm I welcome that she's great she was um, great I thought she was great in this little moment um you know it's really funny so I was doing a little research you know when I heard she's going to be in the show which was a big secret that they kept which is pretty impressive um I, I sort of like Googled like Julie Louis Dreyfus, Marvel villain or something like that. And one of our stories came up. Nicole Sperling did this great cover story with Julie Louis Dreyfus after Veep ended for one of our awards issues, 2019. And there, <laughs> I just, <laughs> there's this great section where Nicole, uh, now the New York Times, the great Nicole Sperling was asking David Mandel, who's the showrunner of Veep and Tony Hale, like, what do you think Julie Louis Dreyfus should do next? And Tony Hale's like, oh, I think she's, she's just like a Disney villain. I think that's what she should do. Dave Mandel's like, yeah, like a Marvel villain. And then Julie Lou Dreyfus says something like, oh yeah, imagine me on wires, like shooting, blah, blah, blah. And they all 100% knew, absolutely knew at that oh, point wow. that she had been cast and they were just like, you know, yeah. being, being cheeky little monkeys. So, uh, yeah, but, but they kept that. T- I mean, this is a big secret that they've kept for a very long time. So hats off to Marvel for that. Uh, I'm excited. People had built up the cameo, you know, because Malcolm Spellman and a few other people had been like teasing this cameo and just the way that we wound ourselves up over WandaVision. Plenty of people had sort of built this up, this cameo up as going to be something else. Um, and I know some people were, it didn't quite match what they were expecting, but I, <laughs> I can just promise you, if you're not aware of the work of Julia Louis-Dreyfus, which is something that I witnessed this morning and didn't know was possible. <laughs> But if you're not aware, this is just such a delightful addition to the MCU. Like, this is this is like Tom Hiddleston as Loki. Like, it, it's just going to be fun, uh, is what I anticipate. So I'm pretty excited. Should we talk about another? There's a lot of villains to choose from. Do you want to talk about Zemo next? Sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I was ex- I was expecting <laughs> that Zemo is going to be a lot more involved in the end game, but I kind of think that he's done now. What do you think of this 
whole arc and ending for Zemo here. Yeah, I and mean, we did get an email kind of wondering, like, why did they just let this, like, global terrorist just kind of walk around, on you know, unmonitored <laughs> after mm-hmm. releasing him? Um, that is a fair question. And, and I think we had talked about last week that his character had sort of shifted from his movie to this show to be a bit more, you know, rakish and funny and light, I guess. Um, they're clearly not done with him for good in this whole universe. Um but I think, I mean, I don't know. It depends on how far we want to reach. But, like, you know, this series is trying to do um, some allegory or direct reference to the various ways that the American government and military work. Um, and one of those things is that they do occasionally make common cause with people that they know to have done bad things. Uh, if they have a common enemy, you know, and then they just kind of fold them back into the bad category when that's done. That's not happening in this case because he's been sort of almost extradited to a different kind of um, custody, I guess. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think you know, if you think about um, that movie Charlie Wilson's War or the actual history of what the U.S. was doing in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Um, we have certainly worked with people who either had been doing bad things or turned you know, later would do bad things, uh, and that is all viewed as part of a necessary function of our imperialist aims. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting what they did with Zemo, because I really thought that they were like sort of making him comedic, in order to undermine, like, to catch us off guard. But I guess not. <laughs> I guess they just thought that Daniel Brühl was funny and so they thought they'd make him funny, which is true, you know. Um, and I'm glad that he's not, like, getting away with it. Mwahaha. But, um, uh, and that the Dora Milaje are, are getting what they want, which is to put him somewhere more secure than wherever he was before, which is the raft. And if you don't know, um, the raft is this sort of floating prison thing where they put a lot of you know, they put Hawkeye and, um, Scarlet Witch and, uh, Falcon and, um, I don't know. Oh, Ant-Man, um, at the end of Civil War. Basically everyone who's on Team Cap, they, they got locked away into this floating prison. Uh, so that's where they're taking uh, Zemo. And I mean, I guess it gave us an excuse to see more of the Dora Milaje, who are like some of my favorite part of this, uh, this series and got me really excited for, uh, Ryan Coogler's doing like a Wakanda Disney plus show. And I'm hoping against hope that is just like a Dora Milaje show because I would absolutely watch that. Um, but yeah, Zemo, Zemo tries one last time to convince Bucky that he's a killer and, and Bucky, you know, weaponizing all the, all the therapy that he's gone through both with his, both with, um, Amy Aquino and, uh, and with Sam to say, no, that's not who I am. And I reject that. Uh, definition of me so that's that's the end of Zemo I guess mm-hmm. for now for now well so we shall see um all right let's talk about John Walker oh, did you watch the mid-credit sequence I, mi- I meant to tell you to make sure to watch it oh darn it I forgot I okay that's it. okay um <laughs> I'll just describe it to you it's John Walker making his own shield it's like John Walker cosplayer basically he's now making his own shield out of like definitely not vibranium I don't know what it's made of. And he's, and he's like glued his medal of honor to it. It's like really sad. So, uh, John Walker. It's not sad. It's pathetic. 
it's, it's really, it's really tough. Um, and so John Walker now, I guess, has his own homemade shield. Um, and we shall see what he does with it next. But, you know, the bigger there, the, you know, there was the, the trial, the fight, the trial, and then him going to see, um, Lamar's family where he lied, uh, to them mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the circumstances of everything. Um, how does all of this sit with you, Richard? Well, I think kind of going back to Terrence's email, the fact that he did lie to the family and that kind of won't take culpability for his own role in that death, um, speaks that much more to how Lamar was just kind of a prop or a, a sort of uh, used to, to further embolden John's image, you know, um, because he barged into that thing where, where Sam had, had kind of almost gotten through to Carly. He knew they were outmatched and he still did it. And then his partner got killed, you know, um, I kind of don't really put that on Carly or the flag smashers, you know, Yes, they were, they, they did, she did do the actual thing that killed him, but, um, that was all a result of, of what John chose to do rashly. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I, I do have a question though, in terms of where he's at. Did he already take the serum? Yes. Okay. So he took it, he took it before his, like, in last week's episode, he has this conversation with Lamar where right. Lamar's like, you're a good guy. You always make the right choices. Right. And he took it between that conversation and the next fight he had because we saw him like bending metal and oh, like right, right, right. throwing course, yeah. people yeah. in a way that like, I you know, you have that. to be, yeah. yeah, you have to be juiced up. So he's got the serum in him and, you know, he's got Julia Louis Dreyfus, the Contessa saying like, good thing you're all juiced up. That makes you very valuable to me. Like stick or answer when I call. Um, but I also think that he's not just going to be waiting for that call. Um, I suspect we'll see him in the fray once more before this season is over. Yeah, his pride is wounded, and that's a really dangerous thing for, you know, for some people. Um, it shouldn't be, but it is all too often. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think they're really, I think that they, they, that they, that they made his scene with Lamar's family both sad for them, but shifty and creepy for him, um, does show that I think the series is committing to him being pretty much an outright villain Um, for complicated reasons, I guess, you know, like he is born of something that um, many people are complicit in. Um, He just has taken it to a more public extreme. And I think, again, there's the nuance of the Contessa saying, they're not really mad at what you did. It's like kind of how you did it or something. Um, that he's become this kind of manifestation of the pure id, let's say, of of these formal institutions. Uh, could be. It'll be interesting to see where that reckoning goes and how far it goes. You know, Terrence had suggested that, like, you know, maybe a long prison sentence or whatever, or maybe they'll let him get away with it because that's just what happens. Um, we shall see. But I, I, I am. I'm finding myself more than I often do really rooting against the villain in this. Cause sometimes I'm like, wouldn't it be kind of fun if so-and-so got, you know, got their way, <laughs> you know, not in this case. Right. Agatha, we were like, Oh, she's fun. Yeah. Or even like, you know, the Contessa or something like that. And and I think they're, yeah, they are trying to serve us up villains who are complicated. Um, but I, I, you know, if I, I'm curious if the goal was at the end of the day for us to feel 
sympathy for John. Cause I think Wyatt Russell's doing a really great job giving us a lot of emotion and nuance. And I did sort of, when he said, you know, you built me like to the American government, like you, you, I was, I was doing what I was told to, you built me sort of thing, sort of pointing the finger, you know, accusingly at them. Um, and I think they deserve that accusation, even if that doesn't, uh, you know, excuse him from what he did it by any stretch. So, I can't tell if they're trying to, you know, have us land in a place where we're like, you know, oh, I'm, I, I feel for John Walker because I don't, I feel for Wyatt Russell who's doing a great job. <laughs> I don't feel for John Walker really much at all. So I don't know. That's where I am. But it's, you know, it's interesting. Like um, Sam, when he's talking to Bucky, he makes this big point of distinguishing between amends and avenge, right? You weren't making amends, you were avenging. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's obviously what John was doing. He was avenging. Um, and is, he's just not that boy. I'm right. He's not in the right space. So there you go. Um, I want to get to, uh, the Isaiah section, which is the middle of this episode um where sam brings the shield to isaiah and he sort of he rejects it um i loved this scene i thought carlin lee maybe delivered my favorite performance of this entire series in that scene um i thought it was really really good stuff and i wish there had been more i like this this i thought had some of the highest highs of the whole season and i wish there had been more of stuff like this um what did you think of the Isaiah sequence? Yeah, I thought it was really strong. I think there there is a um, a real utility sometimes in storytelling to just have a scene or scenes where the thing is just the theme is just kind of talked about openly, not sort of alluded to or slyly addressed. You know, um, this is a scene where they are talking literally about the functions of race and power. Uh, you know, in, in the American military industrial complex, or if you want to simplify it that way, or just a broader sort of America. Um, and we saw not two opposing sides, but two different perspectives on roughly the same side, you know? And I think that Isaiah coming out and saying no self-respecting black man would want to be Captain America. Um, really lands I don't want to give Marvel too much credit but like it lands pretty hugely in this whole franchise you know to to kind of not just uproot this one character and his sort of con conflict over his status as a hero in, in the case of Sam but the whole bigger idea of it and that this character that we've followed or this idea that we followed not Steve Rogers but the Captain America idea for so many films and into this series that that at its heart is corrupted and wrong and would be a sort of shame for someone, you know, else to participate in. I think that's a pretty grand statement uh, in the context of this world uh, that I was surprised and I guess a little impressed that they made. Yeah. I mean, I, like these are the ambitions th that they laid out for us at the beginning of the series. They were like, we really want to tackle this stuff. And I think this is their most successful version of doing that so far. Um, I don't know what's in store for the finale, but I just, this is like really incredible. And even if it, even if like some of my various predictions where I was like, why is Carl Lumley playing so much older than he actually is? Or is there going to be a flashback? Like I thought we might get a whole Isaiah episode. And even if we 
didn't or won't or don't. Um, you know, I just really value this scene, this performance being in a Marvel show. I think it's, it's great work. So, yeah. And it doesn't, you know, absolve all of the other sort of military liaising that the Marvel does and, and, and all of the sort of pro strength, pro America stuff that they've done over the years, but at least like interrogates it a little bit, you know, in a way that, that wasn't in the context of a battle scene where we're like, Oh, look who's fighting who, what does that mean for the, this whole mythos? They actually just sat down with it in a room with two people and talked about it to some extent, um, which this far into the whole enterprise was definitely necessary. They've done similar things in some of the films, sure. But this felt like the most direct and the most personal, um, which I appreciated. And, you know, again, it's so well acted. And, um, you know, watching Anthony Mackie cry um, was unexpected and, 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 you know, beautifully delivered by both actors. Um, all right. Let us hit on uh, Sharon quickly before we get to Sam and Buck themselves. Um so Sharon appears once again, uh, you know, very quickly on the phone. And uh, in my interview with Emily Van Camp, you'll sort of hear maybe why she is fairly peripheral in this season. Um, but so here's here's what I can trace. Sharon calls Batrock the Le- Leaper, which is that guy in the purple jacket who was in the first episode and shows up the end of this episode to bring weapons to the Flag Smashers. So essentially she has activated him to uh you know to hook up with flash smashers and bring them weapons so there's a couple possibilities here either sharon is like working with the flag smashers and is like their shadow leader or she is just pretending to be allied with them is setting them up uh this is a theory that i really like is setting them up uh with george uh, the Batrock the Leaper, so that she can come in and help save the day. And if she comes in and helps save the day, then she gets that pardon that she really wants from the U.S. government. Right. So, um, which she already deserves, but has not been given for some reason. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I yeah. don't blame her. I, too, would want to leave my life of cool, sexy, international art dealing. <laughs> right, right. To go back and live that? in fucking Ohio or wherever. I don't, I don't know. No, no knock on Ohio at all. I like Ohio, but um, you know what I mean? It's just funny because she's like in this like sleek thing surrounded by, yes, stolen art, but um, that she would be so craving uh, to go back into the fold is, is a little funny, I think. But I, I'm intrigued by her character. I, I also had a question about that phone call, so I'm glad you answered that. But I don't know if they're related, but that case that, that Sam has at the end, what, where, where does that come into play? Because he opens it and then the, the episode cuts out. Am I supposed to know oh, what's so- in there? Well, so Bucky, so Bucky, when he saw the Dora Milaje, Bucky's like, I need one more favor from you. Right. And then he brings that case to Sam and he says, this is from Wakanda. And so we saw, we saw, um, John rip the wings off of Sam. And so I think it's new wings from, with Wakanda technology. Oh, so even better Um, wings. Better wings, vibranium wings, possibly. Though I don't know how heavy this would be. Anyway. Yeah. Better wings, better Wakandan wings. For Sam and I kind of I love the idea of that um, because I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you know at the end of this Sam is going to be some sort of like Falcon Cap hybrid. I yeah. do I do think he's going to have the shield at the end of all of, all of this. I think that's what this episode is sort of 
leading us to, right? He yeah. gets this trading montage. He's going to keep the shield, even though Isaiah said what he said, and he agreed with him on some level. He's like, I'm going to keep the shield, right? Um, the training montage was funny because it was like, it was cool to watch him do all the flips and throwing the shield. It's like, do you yeah. need to do the flip after throwing the shield? <laughs> I guess maybe you're dodging things while the shield is in the air. Um, Plus flare. Dazzle. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely. Gotta yeah, you got to dazzle yeah. the enemy. Um, <laughs> I, I also thought, so where the, this whole, the Sam's family is in, are they in Georgia or is it one of the Carolinas? They're, they're in Louisiana and, and, um, Anthony uh, Bresdekin actually pointed this out to me that like making Sam and his family from Louisiana is a nod to like Anthony Mackey's background in the comic. Sam Wilson's like a New Yorker, but they made him like, and apparently Anthony Mackey really loves fishing. So they gave Sam Wilson like a bunch of Anthony Mackey's own uh, background as part of his family foundation. So yeah, they're in Louisiana. I, uh, so it's not quite the typical north or south carolina environs but it is you know i guess this is gulf coast versus atlantic coast but this kind of big mansion in the background all right and with that nicholas barks joke uh the the uh the internet gods decided to eat the rest of richard's audio (laughs) it was one nicholas barks joke too far anyway um richard uh will be back with us of course next week you can follow him on twitter at rylaws uh let us go now to my interview with emily van camp and this is a kind of a funny interview and i i just want to give you some from uh context for it uh you know emily there's a lot she can't say (laughs) And there's a lot that I can't ask. And someone from Disney was listening on the phone. So you're going to hear uh, two women try to give you as much information as they can, knowing that there's not very much information they can give you. And that's, I mean, it's just kind of fun to listen to that. And then also Emily has some very thoughtful and fun things to say about her character. But um, that is our interview with Emily Van Camp this week. So here it goes. <laughs> You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Um, I wanted to start by asking, I was reading um, another interview you gave that that some of your discussions around appearing in this show uh, happened before the scripts were even written. So I was wondering what those what those earliest conversations were like for you in terms of bringing back Sharon Carter. The early conversations were very much, I mean, I think it was the preliminary stages. So they were still figuring out story. They knew it was Falcon Winter Soldier, but... Um, I'm not sure how much they even knew in terms of all the stories they wanted to tell, but for Sharon, um, I think one of the things that they wanted to do was bring her back. And 
revisit her story and see where she's been um, all of this time. We haven't seen her in the films for quite a while. And, um, and they had a pretty strong perspective as to how they wanted to bring her back. And I really enjoyed it and thought it made a lot of sense. Um, and so those were kind of the beginning discussions. And then obviously as, you know, shooting began, um, the scripts came in and, and all of that became, it became very clear that, you know, Sharon was coming back as a very different person. So that was very exciting for me. Can you talk a, a bit about that initial perspective? Like what excited you about what they wanted to do with the way they were bringing her back? Yeah. I mean, I think initially for me, one of the most exciting things was just that, you know, um, initially in the films, Sharon was very much tied to, um, you know, the American government and Captain America and, you know, an idealistic young agent um, with, you know, a very specific point of view um, and to kind of turn that on its head and for Sharon to come back much more jaded and cynical and quite angry, to be honest, at the government that she once um, cared so deeply about and fought for, um, that just was very interesting to me and, you know, made a lot of sense of explaining why she hadn't been pardoned, why she's been on the run this whole time um, and kind of, you know, thriving in this, in this new world, but ultimately it's still a fugitive. Um, and, and so it, 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 the whole concept and idea really um, was a, was a fantastic way to bring Sharon back in my opinion. I do love so uh, Winter Soldier is my favorite of the Marvel movies, um, and mm. I do, you know, there's so much that I love in that movie. But your moment that I love the most is is sort of the the captain's orders moment, and um, I think that's a great moment for Sharon. And I just do think it's really interesting as the show examines the idea of Captain America. Um, to mm-hmm. see sort of one of its most loyal, one of his most loyal foot soldiers take such a disillusioned turn. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, in the beginning, that was one of the things that I loved and admired about Sharon so much in the comic books and in the films was her devotion and her integrity. And, um, you know, either she comes from this very dedicated bloodline of agents. And so, um, I always loved that side of Sharon, but I think what's really cool about the Falcon Winter Soldier and this show is sort of really re-examining what the shield means yeah. to each, like from each different perspective to each character um, and how it's evolved to each character as well, which is um, to me a, a much more interesting perspective and a, a very timely perspective, um, if that makes sense. And, um, and I think in doing a six hour show rather than a two hour movie with so many different characters, um, it allows to really examine that in a more in-depth way. Um, and so you really embark on this journey with each separate character and, and kind of examine what the shield means to them. Um, and in, and unfortunately in Sharon's case, um, it's very different to what it once was. 
I know you talked, um, you know, Sharon, Sharon got to voice her opinion of, of superheroes, um, a bit in episode three, but I was curious if you could elaborate on what you think her attitude towards the shield would be right now. I mean, look, I think in her mind, the government turned their back on her. The, you know, um, these people that she considered her friends that she fought for turned their back on her as well. And so, um, a lot of the disillusionment comes from, from that. Um, having to fend for herself, having to be on the run um, after dedicating her life to a cause, to a government that um, didn't stand up for her and hasn't come um, come for her. And and so, I mean, there there are multiple reasons I think that Sharon comes back the way that she is, and also, you know, I mean, she even said the superhero thing is a joke. You know that, right? And um, Again, that's just yet another perspective of what the shield means to the specific person and what or what it's done to her, what it you know her reaction to what it represents, I guess do you think she would have had the same reaction if it was Steve coming to her rather than you know Bucky and Sam? I don't think so honestly think um and i and i I liked that they didn't make it about her relationship with Steve and her resentment doesn't lie in that it's a much broader point of view. Um, and that to me just made, made more sense than to sort of place the blame on one specific individual. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think there's a bigger picture there. This is a question I've been asking a lot of people. (laughs) I'm curious to hear what you think, either what you think or what Sharon thinks. Um, What do you think makes a good Captain America? Oh, man. I mean, everyone definitely has um, their own point of view. I mean, I think Steve Rogers really embodied what the shield and what being Captain America represented. That's why he's loved, you know, and so difficult to replace. Um, And so I think that's what that's that's what's cool about the conversation. And I think that ultimately is the, the sort of crisis that, that Sam finds himself in, you know, for multiple reasons. Um, And it's not my place to elaborate on that, but, you know, I think, I think it just, it's such a major symbol, um, whether it's to the fans or within the MCU to, you know, the people of that universe, like it, those shoes are very difficult to fill. Um, and so what makes the great Captain America? I mean, it's, you know, it's that integrity, it's that, that strength of character, um, and, uh, you know, all of those things that Steve Rogers embodied that we all loved, you know? And so the interesting thing is to not try to just replace him, you know, but to, Give it, give the shield, give Captain America a new meaning that doesn't need to be the same, but equally as sort of powerful. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, like, no, I like that. I like that. And I think it makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, what Captain America meant during World War II versus where we are now as a country. Obviously, like, um, absolutely the definitions of America change or we learn more about what they actually were in the first place, et cetera. Do you know? Um, absolutely. You said, uh, you said 
timely, um, that this felt really timely. I was wondering if you could, I mean, I, I think I know what you mean by that, but I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that. I mean, look, just in terms of the the social issues that are explored within this show, I, I don't think that anyone set out to be so specific to this time. Um, a lot of these things that we've been experiencing in the past year on a really heightened level they're not new things that are happening. These are things that have been happening. There is just a light that's being brought to them, which is very good and difficult, but, you know, necessary. Um, And so, you know, I I don't think that when they set out to make Falcon Winter Soldier, it was, you know, oh, we need to address these particular issues that are happening right now. Um, also, because, you know, we started shooting with a year and a, uh, you know, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, these scripts were being written. Right. Um, but it just so happens that, you know, I think it's resonating on a deeper level because of some of the light that has come to many of these social issues in this past year. Um, and and I suppose it's just it's kind of a, a perfect storm of of you know, timing and events that have taken place and um, discussions that are being had. And, you know, it just, you know, it just feels like the right time to tell this story without saying too much. Yeah. About what's coming. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't want to talk about it too much. No. Yeah. Story, <laughs> um, but I think you can already get the sense in the, in what we've seen so far yeah. that, you know, um, it's not just a splashy action show. There's so much more to it. And it feels very good to be a part of that, especially during this, in this time. What, what do you make of the, of the reaction of the viewership reaction so far? Have you been surprised by the reaction or have you been watching it at all? Viewers reactions to Wyatt Russell's character, John Locker, which I, um, I think has been so crazy because I, I particularly find him wonderful in the show and totally see why, <laughs> you know, people are outraged. There's this new Captain America, but in terms of the character he's playing, he's doing such a phenomenal job. I think, um, I think everyone could agree to be honest. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think the idea is to start conversations and this show is definitely doing that from fan perspective, from, you know, a social perspective, you know, from on all different, from all the different angles. And so, that's the point. Um, and I think that's, that makes for a, a good, exciting show. And, um, and so it's fun to see all the theories and, you know, people's thoughts about everything and, you know, there will be answers soon. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously you can't, um, you know, confirm or deny any theories, but I'm just curious to know, um, like if you expected that f- folks would be theorizing right away that Sharon might be the power broker. Um, yeah. Was that something you expected that you anticipated would come? No, not necessarily, but I think it's great. I mean, I love, I love hearing these different, like I said, these different theories and perspectives uh, make total sense. I mean, you know, there are characters that we have yet to see, which I also think is exciting. And I'm, I'm curious to see people's reactions to that. And, um, you know, these two episodes to go. So, yeah, I mean, not much I can say, but um, but I love that all these conversations are happening. 
I mean, everyone loves the theory, you know, everyone loves the fan right. theory. Especially in the MCU. Especially <laughs> <with that> fandom. <laughs> um, I, I was wondering, I want to, to sort of zoom back to Civil War. Um, obviously, you know, like the MCU plans, they, they have to change. They're, they're constantly juggling and spinning so many plates. But did you expect when Sharon, like, shared a smooch with Steve in Civil War, were you like, well, I'm, I'm going to be the one kissing Captain America from now on. Like, I'm going to be majorly in the MCU or, or were you <laughs> even at that time sort of un, uncertain as to what was going to happen next? Yeah, I mean, I think I I, I would always, you know, I, I would be crazy to assume that you're going to ever continue so much, you know, shifts and evolves and changes um, within these stories, and rightfully so. I mean, that's that's how big the universe is. So it would be um, a little bit presumptuous on my end, I think, to assume that I was just going to be, you know, all over the movies and all, you know, there's so many stories to tell. Um, so I went into playing with character with that knowledge and um, you kind of know that you're there to service a bigger story, if that makes sense. Um, And so, uh, no, I didn't, (laughs) I definitely (laughs) didn't think that. And I mean, I think it's fair to say, you know, if you're sharing a smooch with Steve Rogers and people have all these very strong opinions about him and who it represents, from, you know, from all different angles, including being a love interest, you know, it's, um, there's a lot of pressure there. And I always sort of wondered, well, does this really fit in, you know? Um, but, you know, some of those stories work and some of them don't. And that's, you know, that's how it goes. And, and I think I've said it before, but you have to laugh and, <laughs> you know, um, I love how his story ultimately played out. I thought it was beautiful and, and, um, and great. And so, you know, I'm just happy we get to kind of see Sharon at a different time, independent of that story. Yeah. I think that's, that's yeah. kind of a nice um, reintroduction to Sharon. I know that you've mentioned that you were simultaneously working on this and the resident and you had to sort of like go back and forth and hide your Sharon Carter bruises while you were working on that show. Um, <laughs> did, did that double schedule, did that impact how much you were able to be in Falcon and the Winter Soldier? Um, well, I mean, I, I couldn't say yes or no to that question. Um, I know that it was definitely a factor that had to be addressed. I mean, scheduling was slightly nightmarish just mm-hmm. because, there were a lot of night shoots on Falcon Witch Soldier. We barely do them on the resident. And, um, you know, everyone was incredibly accommodating. I was very lucky that both productions worked very well together. Um, but that being said, I'm sure it informed to an extent how much I, you know, could do of both. I mean, even the resident had to minimize, you know, my uh, appearance in certain scripts to accommodate some heavy episodes of the Falcon Witch Soldier um, I was just very lucky that both shot in Atlanta because otherwise, I mean, it would have been almost impossible um, to do them both. And, you know, I mean, I kind of went into it also knowing that it was going to be just a very rigorous, difficult year. Um, and so it just kind of, you know, you take it day by day and it was a lot of fun ultimately. <laughs> but um, there were, there were days that were more challenging than others, but in terms of, 
um, how that impacted the schedule and how much I could appear. I'm sure it was definitely taken into account. And then my last question for you, and I know this is a hard one to answer, and I promise I know I know Disney's on this call. I'm not trying to fish for any spoilers or anything <laughs> like that. But I'm 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 curious if you if you can give an answer of like what do you want for Sharon Carter? What what like, you know, given that you must have some sort of affection and feel some kind of ownership over her, like what do you want her path to be from here? That's a really good question. I mean, I think for me, having thought that we'd sort of put Sharon to bed, I'm sort of getting that um, and and being a part of the Falcon Winter Soldier and getting to revisit her in this new light. And, um, you know, we really get to see, you know, it might not be the Sharon that we expect to see, but that's what makes it so much fun. And, um, you know, I I think it's just great to go back and, and, continue her story. And like I was saying, sort of independent of any kind of love story or, you know, um, those things that, you know, we tried to make work, but now it's it's just something totally different that we get to see. And, um, and I don't know, I just, I've had a blast playing this, this new kind of, um, this new version of the character because she's ultimately, you know, almost a completely different person. So it's been a lot of fun. And, um, and what do I want for her? I mean, you know, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, we'll see, you know, uh, we'll, we will see. But it, this, uh, uh, you know, I, you sort of, I, I see it as kind of staying in the moment one step at a time. And, and this was a, a pretty fun uh, step to take with her. So that's as far as I can really go with that. I understand. Perfect. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for chatting. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And thanks. You too. And thanks everyone on the phone as well. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham. And this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> Right, that was the lovely Miss Emily Van Camp, who I have my eyes on. I, I don't trust her. I don't know what's going on there. Um, but we are joined now, of course, by the lovely Mr. Anthony Bresnikin. Hello. Hello. Greetings. <laughs> greetings and salutations. Um, let us just start with the Julie Louis Dreyfus of it all. Um, I know I talked to Richard a little bit about this already, but like, how are you feeling about it? What do you want to talk about? Let's 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 dig in. Yeah, let's talk about the Contessa, aka uh, Madame Hydra, aka Val. Although you shouldn't call her that out loud. Uh, I thought it was a pretty nice surprise to see her turn up, and I 
I, uh, uh, I loved the scene. I thought it was really funny. I thought the bit with the business card being offhandedly handed back was, uh, hilarious and her tone and, uh, it had a little bit of a veep feel to it, you know, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. uh, relentlessness of it. But I, uh, I also think that there's gotta be more to come from Julia Louis-Dreyfus in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I would encourage everybody to look up your article, which is uh, on VanityFair.com this morning, uh, talking about what the future may hold for her. I hope, I hope, I hope we're right in our speculation. But let's talk a little bit about the comic book version of this character. I don't yeah. think they're doing like a one-to-one adaptation because... Um, you know, th- that would be a little wild, but, but, you know, you know, Marvel, they like to do sort of a rounded, loose adaptations of characters. Do you have any comments or questions about the Contessa? She uh, exists on the page. Yeah, I think that's pretty clearly what's going on here. Um, she's not the most well-known character. I think a lot of people are like Googling this character today. Right. And, uh, and they very conveniently had her explain her full title <laughs> in the show so that people could locate the, the, the woman who's known in Marvel lore as Madam Hydra. And I think that name automatically tells you that she's not the, um, she's not one of the good guys necessarily. Right. So she operates a little bit on the outside of the law, but in, the MCU, all the bad guys think they're the good guys, so she must consider herself doing something important. You know, she, she the corollary I would say she has is uh, almost reminds me of like an Eric Prince type character from our world. You know, the guy who headed the Blackwater mercenary group uh, that, yeah. you know, would yeah, yeah. conduct these uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, the business of their clients, often the United States in, in, in war-torn areas. And... Uh, you know, she seemed like one of those characters, like lots of money, lots of power, lots of connections, and she needs uh, people to do the dirty work. And I think she found John Walker more than willing to do dirty work. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting sort of what um, mm-hmm. what happens here in terms of like a supervillain team up. And if that's uh, if that's something we're going to get, you and I have talked before about the idea of a Thunderbolts team. And so perhaps like she's going to be at the head of the Thunderbolts team. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm really interested, but there's, there's a couple things in her comic book history worth mentioning. One that in one, you know, one version of her story that she's a Russian sleeper agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that could connect her back to the characters in Black Widow, to Natasha, to Yelena. Like maybe she was trained in the Red Room. We don't know. Um, another is that. <laughs> She was like an Italian socialite whose parents died. And then she decided to like take a hard turn into espionage as a result, which to me makes her Italian Batman, which I really love. <laughs> and then, and then also that she had a romance with Nick Fury. Um, and I would love it if they preserved that aspect because I would love to see Julie Louis Dreyfus and Samuel Jackson as, as sparring exes. I think that would be really fun. So, oh, um, interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, and we've talked yeah. a lot before about how one of the powers of the MCU is that they, um, they make, you care about characters because the characters care about each other. You know, Steve has Bucky, mm, yeah. uh, Pepper and, and uh, Tony's uh, relationship. Like you, you kind of feel invested in the human side of it. Like they, they care about other people. They aren't just sort of like background sidekicks or whatever. So the idea that uh, there might be some sort of like romantic past between Nick Fury and the Contessa is, it's not just like uh ooh, soap opera kind of scandal, 
uh, fascination, but like the idea that they might have once been so close that they, you know, fell in love or had a relationship, but were also like aligned in their views. You don't fall in love with somebody who's diametrically opposed to you. And then the notion that they might have, you know, turned, turned from each other and, and ended up in very different places. That could be really interesting. I don't know if that's where it's going to go, but that's kind of cool. And how does she know it was Nick Fury and not the scroll? <laughs> oh, how do we know that she's mm. not a scroll? Because that's another thing. She's been, she's been, an, uh, she's been a scrolls scroll. have, scrolls have, uh, you know, posed as her in the comics as well. So I don't know. We might see her in Secret Invasion. That feels like three layers of confusing, but we'll see. Um, that's too much. Marvel's not going to do that. Yeah, maybe, maybe once not. they get to Secret Invasion, but nah, I don't know. All right, let's talk about let's talk about whether or not we think she's the power broker, or whether or not we think this is her only scene. In do you think this is it, or do you think we see her again in the finale? I think there has to be at least some button with her and John Walker. You know, some maybe post credit sting where she, uh, you know, she turns up again. Uh, how many episodes are left? Two. No, no, this one. is the one more. Yeah. yeah this one. one really, I, watching this one, I was like, wait, is this the last episode? Because it started to really feel like it, um, close to the end of this one. But, uh, uh, of course it's not because it ends on a cliffhanger. But, uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a good chance we might see her again. And I, I think there's a very good chance we'll see her again in something else. But you, uh, before we started recording, you, you kind of tipped your hand that you are all in on the Sharon is the power broker theory. Hmm. I mean, I'm all in. I, I think my, my thing was, are we to gather that that, is that the evidence that she's the power broker? So she has a call with Batrock the Leaper. Right. And she says uh, something like, I'll pay you double this time. This time being the two words that stand out there. Mm. So she's been involved with him in some way. I don't think that character has a whole lot going on, frankly, like apart from being a little bit alias light. So I think this gives her some cool dimension and a surprise twist. Um, you know, she had a good fight scene earlier, but uh, but the notion that she, she would have been kicked to the curb after the events of Civil War because she helped the superheroes who were opposed to the government. Yeah. Um, I think that's interesting and very cool. And it could, um, uh, like it could, it, it could connect to something that happens in real life. I mean, going back, to even Roman times, right? Like the a ancient civilizations, when you had armies and they fought in wars and the war ends, you've got to figure out what to do with those soldiers because otherwise you have a lot of mean guys and they were back then guys <laughs> who were very strong and knew how to swing a sword who didn't have anything to do. So like I think throughout our, you know, human history, whenever you have a fight and then you discard the people who did that fighting. Um, you end up with upheaval in your society because suddenly you have this element that's turning against you, you know, or that's that you that feels burned. And they burned Sharon Carter. So uh, I'm not saying she's made some good choices here, but she's clearly maybe chosen some things that she was forced into. So if she's the power broker, uh, I think it's a good twist. I, I kind of hope it's true. I guess I just, I think I, I like, you know, talking to Emily Van Camp about this, I like sort of became ensorcelled by the idea of it and like entranced by her description of it. But it like, it still, 
Hold up. What? I got a spot. What was the word you just used? Ensorcelled? Yeah. <laughs> like when someone uses their sorcery on you and you fall under their spell, you're ensorcelled. Ensorcelled? <laughs> yeah. It's a word. <laughs> really? It's a word. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that word. I'm going to use well, it. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> ensorcelled. Okay. Please continue. <laughs> um, but, um, but the, uh, the idea that like, the idea that Steve, would go back in time to like have a happy ever after with Peggy without making sure that Sharon was okay first. I still have a hard time accepting that. I don't believe that Steve would do that. So I don't know what we'll find out in the final episode, but like, I understand their idea. They, 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 they kind of want to show all these characters who have been like let down or burned by the government, right? You've got Isaiah. John feels that way in this episode. Um, whether or not he's righteous in it, that's how he feels. He's like, you built me and now you're abandoning me. Like, what yeah. the hell? And you know, and so like Sharon similarly. And I like this idea that like, if this show is exploring the legacy of Captain America, and how pure is it after all? This idea that Sharon Carter, who is like one of Cap's most loyal foot soldiers, like one of my favorite parts of Winter Soldier, and I told Emily this, but one of my favorite parts of Winter Soldier is when she goes Captain's orders and she like yeah. holds the gun on, on, um, yeah. So, so it's, um, it's an interesting concept. It's just, I, I'm going to need some reason why Steve wouldn't have come for her before he left. Yeah. Don't you think? He smooched I, her. I, come on. <laughs> Like, yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, but it's, it's, uh, you know, we've talked about this show so much as an allegory about race relations in the United States. It yeah. really, it's worth noting. It's also about, um, it's also about our relationship to the military and soldiers and, and people who were our current service members and former service members and, and how we discard them. I don't know Malcolm Spellman's history. Does he have any, uh, like military history uh, because I, or I, I wonder if any of the other writers on the show do, because I, I feel like there's some real truth. Talk about the truth. Like there's some real truths about that. Um, uh, the lives of those people uh, in this show, yeah, you know, and, 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 you know, you talk the way about the way that uh, um, Sam talks about his history, you know, uh, counseling soldiers who have PTSD, who've come back and, uh, uh, those are all things that we don't talk about when we're, uh, you know, saluting the soldier who stands up at the hockey game, you know, for the little round of applause. The, the, the hard things that our country and our people sometimes like to overlook about what we put those who protect us through. Um, so I, th- I like that this show tackles those, those sort of dual things. Um, the legacy we have with, with, uh, the people we trust with our safety and, the way we treat our fellow human beings and fellow Americans. If this idea that shares the power broker is true. So the way we see it is that she has enlisted, like basically she was, she was working with the flag smashers and then they stole the serum from her, I guess, question mark. Um, and even though they're on the outs with her, she's sending Batroc to go help them. And I don't know why she would do that. So here's the theory that I read that I thought was really interesting. And All I, right talked about a little bit with Richard. Maybe Sharon is the power broker. Let's say she is. But like, what is this Batfrock the Leaper gambit? Like, why is she calling him up and sending him over to the Flag Smashers to help them when in theory they're, you know, they've fallen out with the power broker? Um, and one one theory I read that I really liked was this idea that like, 
We know there's a big clash coming up. It's going to be in New York at the G20. We've seen it in trailers. Like it's happening, right? Um, the Flag Smashers are going to be involved. Batrock, I guess, is going to be involved. He's going to be wanting to take out Sam. What if Sharon shows up to help save the day? Like pretending to be on the good guy side. And that's how she gets her pardon, which is what she wants. Like, what is she setting all this up so that she can swoop in and be a hero and then be welcomed back in by America? Oh, Question interesting. Mark. So it's like a bit of a false flag. False flag smashers. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, like she's creating the crisis so that she can resolve the crisis. And yeah. Get... That's a good theory. I yeah, like I like that. it. Because, like, what is her ultimate goal? And, like, you know, Emily Van Camp's job uh, right now is to lie to us as much as possible. Not lie, but, like, you know, conceal <laughs> the revelations. That's her job right now. But she she seems insistent that what Sharon really wants is that pardon. And she might be not telling the truth. But, like, if that is if that is what Sharon really wants, then this seems like the the only way that her actions – gets the results that she wants. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a good, I think it's a good approach, but one thing I would caution is with one episode left, keep in mind that Marvel tends to, uh, straighten out. It's not instead yeah. of create more of them. It's this true. Where the twists in the road sort of, uh, turn into a straightaway. It's true. And even in, even like, even in this penultimate episode, there's so much that I was like, oh, well, there's going to be this big plot where like Zemo goes after Isaiah and Sam has to protect him and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, no, Joanna, it's just, it's simple, simple, straightforward down the road. Well, I'm you know wondering if I mean? we've seen the last of, or at least the, all we're going to see of Isaiah in this series. I thought we would get a flashback because Carl Lumley, as we've mentioned, is a nice, young, hale and healthy man, not <laughs> as aged as he plays in this. Yeah. But um, he ended up telling his story to Sam without flashbacks. So mm-hmm. I think maybe yeah. that's just going to stand how it is. And maybe they just want to keep Isaiah around. So they cast a younger actor to play the older man. You know, that's a common thing yeah. for shows or for people. Maybe. You know, that's why you have Estelle Getty as Sophia on The Golden Girls, <laughs> even though she was, uh, she was, uh, you know, I think about the same age as the other Golden she was. Girls. She was. <laughs> Do you remember seeing her without the wig and stuff? Like for the first yeah. time, you're like, wait, what? That's not a real old, old lady? Uh, oh, man. Sorry. A real reality Don't- bending moment for me, for sure. Yeah. Or Vicky Lawrence as mom. <laughs> Wait, she's like 30? Uh, oh, Anthony, anyway. slow down with your contemporary references. I, think, I know. Mama's I Family <laughs> and Golden Girls. Truth bombs on the Falcon and Winter Soldier podcast. <laughs> uh, um, but I, but I, yeah. I love his performance. Boy, I think Carl Lumley gives maybe the best performance in any Marvel project. He is in big, probably because it's all on him. It's just on his voice. And on his face, which despite being heavily made up, is still conveying so much emotion. Uh, and it's one of the few times I can remember a character in a Marvel project just telling his story without the use of other visuals and things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought it was really powerfully done that we see the weather on his face rather than having to see the, the you know, witness ourselves, the... Uh, the incidents we witness it through his expressiveness, and uh, I, I don't know. I would. I mean, it was it was incredible. Like this episode is called "The Truth," right? And that's obviously an allusion to the comic book that we've been talking about, "The Truth: Red, White, and Black," which is Isaiah Bradley's story. 
Um, I think this scene, like this scene is the show and the show isn't always this scene, but it should be always this scene. Like that scene is one of those quiet Joanna moments that you love so much. (laughs) Two people talking in a room, but it's so good. And, um, I just, um, everything he said, all the things that he was talking about, about like, you know, they raced me, but again, they've been doing that for 500 years. You know, like we talked before about how they like printed out that Killmonger speech of the end of Black Panther and put it up in the writer's room. Like that, this is that direct influence on what Isaiah is saying here. Right. And, um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, Well, the other thing that I think is, you know, and one of our emailers pointed out to us is like, you know, he's thrown in jail for doing the same thing that Steve did when he defied commands and went and rescued Bucky and the rest of the Howling Commandos, right? Steve did the exact same thing. And Steve is a hero. (laughs) And I mean, Steve went into the ice maybe before he could be court-martialed or whatever. No, but he was like, welcomed home a hero. He did that that as his first act as like Captain America that wasn't just for propaganda you're purposes. You're right. You're right. Yeah. So he's welcomed home a hero and Isaiah's put in jail and experimented on and has scars on his body. You know what I mean? And like lifting up his shirt to show the scars on his body. Um, you know, that's very strong, obviously abusive of body imagery that, that, that we've like seen in the long history of black Americans. And it's just, uh, just so powerful. And like this show has been up and down for me in terms of, what I, what I've enjoyed about it, but, um, you know, for giving us this scene, it's all worth it, I think. So, yeah. It was extremely good. And I think they, when the Emmy time comes around, they should put up Carl Lumley. Like, what do you think? Uh, and like a, yeah, is he, like, is he, Don't if he qualifies guest, for guest actor, yeah. Guest actor? I yeah. Mean, it was yeah. just so good. I just want to – I love this guy. <laughs> he's no, such a good I agree. performer. And I like agree. he's one of those people that like, you know, he has deserved recognition before. And he's got it. Like he's a popular actor. He's, but uh, but um, uh, but this performance just really touched me. Again, just because the actor himself uh, with an assist from the makeup team just nailed it. I, I mean I was just uh, entranced watching him. I would say ensorcelled. While watching, <laughs> <laughs> nailed it, nailed it. Yes, uh, <laughs> new word deployed. Um, yeah, it's um, and that line he has where he says, "You want to believe Jill was my fault because you got that white man's shield," and it makes me think of all these conversations that we have around when we see um, when we see. A, a, a victim of police violence, um, mostly uh, levied at black men or young black men. Um, mm. there, you know, they, there's that like phase of the conversation where people are like adjudicating whether or not this young man or woman deserved it. Like what kind of victim is this person, right? This narrative of like, well, what, what warrants you know what were what were his warrants what was his backstory what was it what were his offenses blah blah, blah. you yeah, know and there's like on the other hand it right like, yeah exactly people try to like excuse it away stuff like that and this idea that like it doesn't matter who you are <laughs> or what your warrants are or whatever uh the police the police are not allowed to murder you <laughs> That's not, they're yeah. not allowed to, yeah. you know what I mean? And so it's just sort of that idea Having of a like broken taillight or, you know, yeah. something and like that is not a, it's not a 
that's not a capital crime. We don't execute people for that stuff under any but, circumstance. Yeah, but we do see that narrative of like people wanting the, because they want Excuse to me. believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in law and order, quote unquote, right? They want to believe the system is right, and so they will vilify the victim in order to make sure. And that whole idea where Isaiah says, "You want to believe jail was my fault." You want to find the way in which this is my fault because you've got that white man shield. And I just thought that was so powerful. And uh, to the person who emailed us last week asking us not to talk about politics on this podcast, sorry, not sorry. Like, yeah. that's what this show is, you know? Yeah, they, that, I think that it's this show is asking us to look at our lives. You know, if you want to call that politics, then okay. But I think it's it's about existing in the world. and what our role is in it as individuals. And you might say, well, I didn't do that. I didn't put my knee on George Floyd's neck, but it's important to look at what we do as citizens of this country and what we look past and how we stand up if we have the opportunity to, and um, you know, whether it's at pro in protest or in the way we vote or the way we think or the way we talk, you know, I think Isaiah Said, and this is the, the power of fiction, right? Fiction entertains us, but it also is a, it's a way that we reflect upon ourselves and, and digest it <laughs> and digest the things we think about. Uh, it's like posing hypotheticals, right? And you game out how you feel and how you want to react and what you believe. And that's what the best entertainment does. Uh, it doesn't just help you escape. Maybe it helps you escape to be a, a better person. What Isaiah was saying really struck me because I I like the character of Steve Rogers. I think he stands for the ideals that I believe in, that I hope our country would stand for. And I say ideals because they're not always in practice. And Rogers kind of acknowledged that. And you and I have talked about how Captain America in the comics has often been, uh, he's not a, he's not a jingoist. He's not a, uh, 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 my country, right or wrong, my country kind of guy. He is very critical of the actions of the government sometimes because he thinks that's how you defend America is by defending it from enemies, both without and within. And when Isaiah talks in such blunt terms about, you know, that white man's shield, I think it's, it's easy to feel a little defensive, but that's, that's something you have to get over because he's right about a lot of things. And I think Steve would have a lot to think about if he were listening to that conversation as well. Don't you? Like, I think. No, I mean, and I think. He means well. So I think if you mean well, then let's hear, let's hear out the experiences of somebody who hasn't been treated very well by our society. And, you know, he, the hardest thing he said is, I don't think any, I I, I hope I'm, I don't mean to butcher the quote, but he said like, I don't think any self-respecting black man would pick up that shield. That's a powerful line. Right. And this is exactly the, the idea that Malcolm Spellman sort of prepared us for in the first interview on this podcast, where he's like, there's going to be some very compelling arguments as to why Sam shouldn't have the shield. And it's not, I don't deserve the shield. It's, you know, the shield is tainted. Like you can't wipe the blood. You know, we see Sam try to, you know, wiping that blood off the shield. Uh And Isaiah's point is like, you can't. That blood is there. You can't wipe it off, you know. I, and I, I, I think Malcolm did a great job of, of getting us there because last episode after we saw that final shot of John Walker with the bloody shield after what amounts to a police execution, a street execution, 
uh, of the kind we've seen on YouTube and on Twitter countless times repeatedly. Uh, it made me go, yeah, you know what? Maybe that shield, it's now a weapon in a, in a crime. You know, it's tainted in some ways. And I think the conversation that uh, Bucky and Sam have when they're at his home in um, in New Orleans, uh, I love that they set up the mats on the trees as they're practicing with the shield. <laughs> yeah. I was like, how conscientious. You don't want to tear apart the the landscape. Uh, it was very – that was actually kind of sweet. Um, well, it's logistical too, right? Because wouldn't the shield just embed itself into the tree? I guess wouldn't it embed itself in the wrestling mat or whatever that was? You're right. You're right. You're right. Fair <laughs> but I just thought, oh yeah, you don't want to beat up, you don't want to chop down all the trees on your your property. Uh, I get it. Uh, as a little aside, but they had a pretty hard conversation about Bucky trying to make amends, and uh, Sam says something to him. Like, you know, about doing the work. And I have to, I gave a shout out in one of our earlier episodes to, uh, the journalist Rebecca Theodore Vachon, who hosts the show called The Spectrum Lounge. And she's been talking about, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier too. I would encourage everybody go after you listen to our show or before you listen to our show, or whatever, like go check out their podcast too. She talks about a lot of these, uh, topics. And one of the things she said in a past episode was, she agrees that Bucky shouldn't pick up the uh, the uh, the mantle of Captain America. He shouldn't pick up the shield because he has work to do. Like, yes, he was brainwashed, but he did do these things, and he's grappling with it. And it's not that he's the bad guy, but he has work to do. And she used that phrase. It stuck with me. And then to hear Sam echo it, I was like, damn. She, it's like, again, do you guys have crystal balls? You see these things coming? Uh, but she... I think she picked up on something Malcolm Spellman was trying to put down in the early episodes, which is um, that Bucky stands for the kind of white American who wants to be supportive and wants to do the right thing and be an ally, but isn't perhaps sure how to do that or what's appropriate. And that notion of doing the work is something I think everybody with uh, with a good heart and a good code who means to be kind and stand up for those ideals we discussed like that's what you've got to do is not necessarily worry about defending your own feelings but think about the feelings of others and i like what he said like maybe you'd need to not keep trying to make yourself feel better but just help some of these people make them feel good and uh i think yeah. Bucky took that to heart i thought but again i think this is all very metaphorical right like this is all allegorical about where we are in our own society and how we how we each carry our little piece of it forward. Sorry, soapbox time. Sorry for the no, politics. Sorry, no, no, not no. sorry to the don't, politics. Don't apologize. No, Anti-politics um, writers. Yeah, no, I was I was thinking that um, when uh, when Sam was was you know Sam was basically giving him a little bit of therapy mm-hmm. uh, in that in that scene, but it's also that sort of like free labor and education that a lot of black people have to do for, you know, well-meaning or not well-meaning white allies when they're like, but what can I do? You know what I mean? And like, I've heard from a number of people in the black community who were like, Google it. It's not my job to educate you. And then I was, so then I was like, oh no, are they putting Sam in a position where he's having to do this like free education? And then I was like, but then, you know, Bucky showed up and helped him with the boat. Like, you know what I mean? Like there is an, there is an exchange of help here. Um, it's not just Bucky showing up and being like, help me help you or whatever. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's an exchange. And I did, I, I think that moment yes. where Bucky, where Bucky hands the shield over 
he hands the shield over and he just goes, I'm sorry. You know, and he's like, we didn't know, you know, what it would be like for a black man to pick up the shield. How could we know? And that, and that's such, that's an interesting little revelation buried in there because that means that Bucky and Cap had conversations about this, which, you know, we didn't know previously necessarily. There was a little, um, yeah, that did, that did drop a little information on us, right? Yeah. That people wondered. Remember when he said, I'll miss you when Steve goes back? Uh, right. In yeah. time. And yeah, he knew. But yeah. I do think that scene, look, you, you're absolutely right. And there's a phenomenon of, of white folks who, you know, teach me, teach me <laughs> how to be a better person. And, and, uh, you know, I think that does have, probably does have to get pretty annoying after a while. But, um, yeah, I think in this instance, the way it was written, that there is a friendship that has developed between Bucky and Sam and, yeah, you know, when, when you are true friends with someone, you can talk to them and you know that the other person will listen. And I felt like that it, it also showed just the personal relationship between them because we're talking about these things now on the macro level, right? How people of different backgrounds and races interact with each other. And this brings it down to where it really lives in our lives, which is on the interpersonal relationship. And, uh, you have, uh, you have two guys who've been through different but somewhat related experiences and in some cases fought alongside each other. And I think they were sharing what they had with each other. They were opening up. And Sam also is a he's a helper. He's a therapist. You know? Yep. He's a, therapist. <laughs> he's a counselor, it's true. So um yeah. You know. But better therapy than Bucky was receiving before. I think that's that's the point here. Yeah. Um I want to talk a little bit about what's in the Wakanda box. Yeah. Do you have, do you have, uh, I have my theories. Do you have your theories? Um, I was very curious about that, but first, can we talk about how stylish the box was? <laughs> like, <laughs> I yes. was like, I was like, what well, man, the people of Wakanda, they just have the aesthetic down, right? They know how to make it. Even the box is beautiful. Uh, it's like one of those, you, you know, like how your grandma would say, Oh, the present is so beautiful. I can't even open the box. Like it was so, it was just such a neat case. Uh, and it had that. I was like, did Shuri make this? This just seems like her style. And uh, I don't know what it is. Is it a new pair of wings? Because he left his wings behind. He decided he didn't need those wings. Uh, but is it something new? Is it perhaps a new shield? It didn't seem like a shield-shaped box. So I don't know about that. But Here's my, here's my speculation. Yeah. I think it's new wings maybe a new suit, possibly vibranium is involved. Definitely some Wakandan technology. I think Sam's going to stick with the Steve shield. Um, and so I think we're going to see him as some like Falcon cap hybrid. And I think there's something really powerful about this notion of him having like the American shield and the African tech, like on his back. Do you know what I mean? Like the Wakanda on him and the American on him. Um, I think that that's an interesting uh, potential visual and something to think about, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's, that's pretty powerful itself. Right. Um, I think we talked in an earlier episode about how you have to be careful when you talk about T'Challa and Sam Wilson, because T'Challa is the first black superhero in the MCU. Um, but he's not African-American because he's not, 
American. And that's an important part of his identity. But Sam Wilson is the first African-American hero in the MCU. And I think if he has something like that, that is, that emphasizes the heritage that his family, his ancestors came from, uh, tying back to the continent and, and the African legacy, then that, that Wakanda represents as an unconquered, independent, uh, powerful nation, then I think that's a beautiful thing. Again, it's kind of uh, fiction leaning into the ideals, but that's part of its power. Uh, speaking of wings, I think we should also mention that um, Lieutenant Torres, uh, you know, he's looking at, at Sam's wings at one point. He's like, hey, what should I do with these sort of thing? And that's a nod. I think we've talked about this before, but that's a nod maybe to the fact that Torres becomes a Falcon in the comic books. Yeah. Will this, you know, will this iteration played by this actor become the Falcon? I don't know. This might just be a little nod to that. Or, you know, maybe we will see him. Maybe we'll see two fly boys in future. I it's think possible. we'll see. I think we'll see him. Okay. <laughs> I love that Excellent. line, like, keep them. <laughs> so um, all right. Anything, like, what else do you want to, do you want to make sure we hit before we go? Hmm. Let's see. Was there anything else? This was, this was a powerful episode. Really well done. I mean, I, I think what's clear in the finale is that we're going to see Bucky, um, make his confession to, um, Yori. Um, the, the old man that he was getting sushi with in the, in the first episode. That is basically what Sam is advising he do. Stop avenging, start making amends, right? Um, I think we're going to see this big clash in New York after all yeah. the flag smasher allies were John Wick activated <laughs> via cell phone app. Um, that was I, wild. Yeah. I Did mean, you notice the guy in the forefront of the park ended up being one of the security guards at that yes. council meeting? Like that I, was, I sure did. I'm I sure, sure did. I was, you know, it was. I was like, oh, that's that's a nice little like visual nod. Oh yeah, danger, danger. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, like a big a big clash. Um, we'll see where John Walker heads at the end of it if he if he makes it out of this season alive. We'll see if Bucky feels like he's on the path. I think I've, I've seen a lot of theories that Bucky might die before the end of this season. And I, I don't see that for him. I don't think he makes his confession and then dies. I think, I think, you know, first of all, I think they want to keep Sebastian staying around. And secondly, like, I think this is about Bucky getting on a healthy path, you know. Do you think it's going to be a confession too? Because a confession is to be absolved, right? You confess so that you, you know, I, I say as a guy who raised in 12 years of Catholic school, like you go confess your sins and you get absolution, you get forgiveness, and it's meant to make you feel better. And that's not what Sam advised him to do. Um, and what does confessing to, say, the old man whose son was killed, what does that give him? I know he said he just wanted to know why, right? Was that – am I remembering that right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I suppose I, I didn't mean confessing necessarily. Oh, no, no, no. You know, no, that, yeah. that specifically. I, I, maybe that's yeah. a part of it, but I just kind of wonder what could he give this man? This man's missing his son. Could he be the son? Would he want him to be the son? Like, or a stand in? You know, we all could, search for I, father figures and things like that. I think, <sighs> I, and I think they're imaginative enough that they're going to come up with something that he can do that actually maybe does make a mark. And again, I think this is such a great metaphor because, um, it's just that notion of if you were raised, and you learned a lot of wrong things. You learned a lot of backward things as a, say, white American. And how do you unload those prejudices? It's, it's like you didn't, 
it, it's in some ways like it's not your fault, but it is your fault if you carry it forward. <laughs> and so how do you break that cycle? Um, you can't help what you were learned or what you were taught the way Bucky can't help that he was brainwashed, but he did do these things. And so how do you make amends for things like that? And uh, how do you make the world better? I'm, I'm really curious how they'll answer that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping um, we, you know, Bucky will stick around the MCU so we can find out. Um, the last thing I want to say, oh, about John Walker. I had a note here. That mm. moment where they're trying to pull the shield off his arm is so evocative of, of the Avengers trying to pull the gauntlet off of Thanos' yeah. arm. Very, very, you know, I was watching with some friends last night and, uh, one of them just went like, that looks familiar. <laughs> like, yeah, we've seen that, you know, mm-hmm. down to like the fact that like, in Infinity War, I think it's Star-Lord has like the jetpack or someone, someone is like pulling from above. Anyway, it's just like very, very familiar looking intentionally. So like that, that John Walker has gone to the Thanos side of everything. Um, and you know, I, I guess he'll be coming back as cosplay. You, you saw the mid credit sequence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cosplay cap. Um, here he comes, John Walker. Uh, that pathetic. was disturbing. Yeah. It was, it was funny because it also had conjured memories of Iron Man and, in the cave kind of mm-hmm. putting together mm-hmm. his own armor. And I don't know. Yeah. It, it I found, I think, you know, Wyatt Russell deserves a lot of credit, uh, because I, this character is despicable to me. And, uh, it's sometimes it's easy to hate the actor. Like, uh, you know, the young man who played Joffrey on Game of Thrones. <laughs> like, you start to Who just... was the nicest kid ever. He was so <laughs> yeah. nice. It's kid. so easy to hate that kid after, after seeing the character, but, um, you got to admire the actor for bringing that despicableness to life in such an authentic way. And he does, boy, his, his grievance at like, you don't understand me. God, that seems so much like the excuse making we see from these uh, cops who've killed people who've done very little to nothing wrong. Uh, you know, just this, this sort of chip on the shoulder is, and you don't know what it's like to be through, go through this experience. I don't have to know what it's like. <laughs> you did a crime, you know? Uh, there's one more thing I want to bring up and, uh, before we go, Joanna, and they were talking about repeatedly, I think they said Steve is gone, right? Do yeah. you think that means he died? Did he fade away or? Well, what does that mean? I mean, I need some clarification on this because uh, from a lot of other people I've heard, they think that Steve's in an alternate time stream. That he hopped back in time and created a branch with Peggy, and then somehow somehow made his way back over to the main timeline to give the shield, and then hopped back over to that branch. I don't know how he does it, but he's Steve Rogers. He could have figured it out. So, I think people that's an interpretation because I think people don't like to think about how complicated it would be for Steve to go back and live back through the same timeline. Um, so maybe he's just back on his home timeline or maybe he's on the moon or maybe moon he died stuff. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe he'll show up in the finale. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I think he, I maintain he should not. I think his absence is important here. I, I, I mostly agree with you. I think, um, all right, let me close with just a couple, um, Email things for Soul Bunny. And we had actually a couple of emails of people telling us to give Turkish Delight a chance. Um, I say, no, I refuse to. Uh, absolutely uh, not. I mean, I'll try anything. <laughs> if they want to send some. 
<laughs> yeah, drop your P.O. box. Um, maybe it's like, yeah, you know, maybe I just haven't had the good Turkish delight. I don't know. <laughs> and then we got a bunch of um, emails responding. We had a ton of emails this week. I'm sorry we didn't get to a lot of them, but we had a bunch of emails responding to our request to hear from parents and how yes. they were sort of processing you know, the, the darkness of the series with their kids. And I was wondering, you know, Anthony, I know you read a couple of them and I was wondering if you had any takeaways from these emails. Yeah. I, I, first off, I'm so impressed with the uh, thoughtfulness of our listeners. I love reading these letters and hearing what people have to say. And I thought the couple that I read were really insightful and they came from different directions. I think one of them said, yeah, my, my kid's a little young and these aren't teenagers, you know, they're talking about people, kids between the ages of like maybe six and 11, right? And uh, my kid's a little young for that scene and others are like, you know, I'm, it's heavy, but I'm going to watch it uh, with him or her and, and then we'll talk about it. I think that's super important. I, we watched we watched this episode uh, or the last episode, the shocking one with John Walker committing that execution, extrajudicial execution in the street. And, you know, I kind of stood up in front of the TV just to block that final shot from them. I didn't want to pause it or stop it. They know something was up, that I was hiding something. So I tried to more surreptitiously hide it. And, uh, you know, they saw it anyway. My my daughter is uh, 11. My son is 8. And when he was committing the act, my son chirps up in this little bitty voice, that's not what Captain America would do. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, you got to give kids credit for – um, understanding and feeling things. I don't think you should shield kids from everything. Obviously, different kids, though, experience things in different ways. And I think what we did was we heard from parents who knew their kids. I was so impressed with the how well each parent knew, knew his or her kid and what they could handle and what they were – how they would process it. And, you know, my kids yeah. processed it okay, but they came away saying – that guy who looks like Captain America is not acting <laughs> like Captain America. And I was very proud of him. Well, I think that um, one common theme, whether whether folks were, whether these parents were saying, yeah, my kid will watch this or I don't think I want to show them this was like, all of them were saying, well, I think Marvel has now become a thing that I need to pre-screen or at least this se season has become something I need to watch first before I show it to my kid to like see how it's going to be, which maybe wasn't the case in their family with Marvel before. And, and I think that that's, you know, but yeah, as you say, there's just a lot of really, really smart parenting going on out there. And really, and like what I just loved about it was this idea of like, we're going to do this and we're going to have conversations about it. And I think that's a really, you know, that's a really cool thing that Marvel's doing. Like, is this, a little too bloody and violent for some kids. Yes. But is it maybe prompting really interesting conversations for other kids? Also? Yes. So I just think that that's really interesting <laughs> turn for Marvel. So there you go. Uh, not just kitty fair, uh, folks. All right. Um, I think that's it for emails and discussion. Unless there's anything else you want to add, Anthony. That does it for me. All right. Good. We'll be back next week at the finale. We've got, a pair of tremendous interviews for next week. I'm so excited. We've got boo Wyatt Russell. I mean, yay Wyatt Russell <laughs> and also Carl Lumley. So the two, the two alternate caps uh, are coming, are coming through on the podcast next week. And I'm really excited to talk to them. Uh, and Anthony and Richard and I will be back. Of course, until then, Anthony, where can folks find you? You can find me writing on vanityfair.com and posting my thoughts on 
is ensorcelled or realworld.com. <laughs> Look it up, man. <laughs> I did. It's real. <laughs> it's real. Uh, you know, have you heard of this word, uh, orbisculate? No. Okay. <laughs> Anthony's like, I can't end the episode. Having learned a word from Joanna, I must teach her a word. Okay. Is, what, no, word, what is the thing? Is orbisculate a word? So there's a story of a, uh, a fellow named Neil Krieger, whose daughter Hillary, um, was like eating like a grapefruit or something and the juice squirted her in the face, you know, and you dig in with a spoon mm -hmm. or something. And she told her friend, Oh, that's orbisculating. And the friend was like, that's not a real world. And they looked it up and it's not a real word. It's not in the dictionary. And she's like, Oh, but my dad used to use this word. And it turns out her dad admitted, yes, I, I made that word up. It just <laughs> sounded right for when fruit, for when you dig into a fruit and it squirts you or biscuit. And it hits, it. I think orbiscular specifically hits you in the eyeball. And like, uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, Neil died from COVID related illness. Her father died and she began a quest to try to get orbiscular into the official English language dictionaries. And I heard about this on Preet Bahara's show, uh, his podcast, and he was talking about it and encouraging people to, uh, support you and one of the ways that a word becomes part of the dictionary is if people are using it so i when you brought up ensorcelled i thought is that a, i've just not heard, uh, encountered that word and it reminded me a little of orbisculate which i just heard about this week so i decided i would uh, shout out orbisculate too i hope uh, as a tribute to this woman's father it gets in the dictionary so two new words for y'all <laughs> <laughs> all right i, I you can find me at vanityfair.com. Follow me, follow me on Twitter at isorbisculate a real word, should it be. Uh, and uh, we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Luna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as a specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.